just a crazy situation. But here's a song about a prison and a prisoner in it. Behind these prison walls, there's a man who's won awards for the work that he has done and all that it affords, such as the knowledge of the harbors committed in our name. They can't stop the message, so the messenger gets blamed behind these prison walls in solitary confinement in a land of rolling hills and royalty and other such refinement is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere who help them tell the world of the crimes of Tony Blair Behind these prison walls You will find a mortal man The reason why we know what happened In Afghanistan When the soldiers of the empire Whose sunset long before Were torturing civilians In their terror war Behind these prison walls is a part of WikiLeaks, an eloquent orator, but you won't hear him speak. Locked away in silence, one who knows too well how those in power act when there's another war to sell. Behind these prison walls is one who stands accused of exactly what offenses the U.S. has refused to say precisely which or to try to clear the mist or to explain how he's not the same as the other journalists Behind these prison walls is a person they deprive of most of the things in life that keep us all alive. A person being tortured as we stand here now for revealing the war crimes. Why, when, where, how? Behind these prison walls, our very right to be informed of what the hell is going on is the teacup in this storm. With knowledge there is power, so the solution by the crown, a 24 hour a day, indefinite lockdown. Behind 
these prison walls. And that was David Rovick singing Behind These Prison Walls. You can find that on the album Viral Solidarity. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. You can check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And on that same site, you can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, here is a piece from StopWar.org. UK. This is written by Noam Chomsky and Alice Walker. On Monday, Julian Assange was driven to the Old Bailey to continue his fight against extradition to the United States, where the Trump administration has launched the most dangerous attack on press freedom in at least a generation by indicting him for publishing U.S. government documents. Amid coverage of the proceedings, Assange's critics have inevitably commented on his appearance, rumors of his behavior while isolated in the Ecuadorian embassy, and other salacious details. These predictable distractions are emblematic of the sorry state of our political and cultural discourse. If Assange is extradited to face charges for practicing journalism and exposing government misconduct, The consequences for press freedom and the public's right to know will be catastrophic. Still, rather than seriously addressing the important principles at stake in Assange's unprecedented indictment and the 175 years in prison he faces, many would rather focus on inconsequential personality profiles. Assange is not on trial for skateboarding in the Ecuadorian embassy for tweeting, for calling Hillary Clinton a war hawk, or for having an unkempt beard as he was dragged into detention by British police. Assange faces extradition to the United States because he published incontrovertible proof of war crimes and abuses in Iraq and Afghanistan, embarrassing the most powerful nation on earth. Assange published hard evidence of, quote, the ways in which the first world exploits the third, according to whistleblower Chelsea Manning, the source of that evidence. Assange is on trial for his journalism for his principles, not his personality. You've probably heard the refrain from well-meaning pundits. You don't have to like him, but you should oppose threats to silence him. But that refrain misses the point by reinforcing the manipulative tropes deployed against Assange. When setting a gravely dangerous precedent, governments don't typically persecute the most beloved individuals in the world. They target those who can be portrayed as subversive, unpatriotic, or simply weird. Then they actively distort public debate by emphasizing those traits. These techniques are not new. After Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers to journalists to expose the U.S. government's lies about Vietnam, 
The Nixon administration's White House plumbers broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in search of material that could be used to discredit him. NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden was falsely portrayed as collaborating with the Chinese, then the Russians. Obsession with military intelligence analyst Manning's mental health and gender identity was ubiquitous. By demonizing the messenger, governments seek to poison the message. The prosecution will be all too happy when coverage of Assange's extradition hearing devolves into irrelevant tangents and smears. It matters little that Assange's beard was the result of his shaving kit having been confiscated, or that reports of Paul Manafort visiting him in the embassy were proven to be fabricated. By the time these petty claims are refuted, the damage will be done. At best, public debate over the real issues will be derailed. At worst, public opinion will be manipulated in favor of the establishment. By drawing attention away from the principles of the case, the obsession with personality pushes out the significance of WikiLeaks' revelations and the extent to which governments have concealed misconduct from their own citizens. It pushes out how Assange's 2010 publication exposed 15,000 previously uncounted civilian casualties in Iraq, casualties that the U.S. Army would have buried pushes out the fact that the United States is attempting to accomplish what repressive regimes can only dream of, deciding what journalists around the globe can and cannot write. It pushes out the fact that all whistleblowers and journalism itself, not just Assange, is on trial here. Next up is a piece written by Dorothy Benz, published at FAIR.org. Democracy Dies in Obfuscation Quote, U.S. political divide becomes increasingly violent, rattling activists and police, a Washington Post headline declared last week. My high school English teacher would have taken a red pen to that title, pointing out that divides cannot be violent. Only people can. People on both sides of a divide are becoming violent, is what the Post meant. And that is the real problem with this headline and the 2,800 words that follow. False equivalencies are among the biggest distortions that plague corporate journalism, as FAIR has documented over and over, especially in an era when lying has been adopted as a key political strategy by the president and many others on the political right. Coverage of, quote, both sides of an issue, without plainly separating facts from fiction, actively undermines democratic discourse and the informed citizenry on which it depends. People at the Washington Post are aware of the crucial role the media play in making democracy possible. So aware, in fact that they introduced the paper's first slogan in its history. Democracy dies in darkness, a month after President Donald Trump took office. And I have to say, my opinion on that is not that this is their slogan, but this is actually their prescription. It's their goal. It's hard not to assume the timing was an indication of the Post's expectation that a vigilant press would be especially necessary 
in a Trump presidency. And yet, in the extensive genre of corporate media obfuscation about right-wing paramilitary violence, this Washington Post piece stands out even amidst some tough competition. The first four paragraphs of the piece describe an armed right-wing attack on a voter registration rally sponsored by a Democratic congressional candidate in Tyler, Texas. An attack the Post and most other national outlets didn't bother to cover when it happened several weeks earlier. Hundreds of armed people descended on the peaceful crowd, yelling obscenities and physically assaulting them. But this is where the accurate reporting ends. The next sentence refers to this scene as, quote, scuffling. It's not how I would choose to describe a violent attack by heavily armed people. The term both downplays the level of violence and intimidation involved in the attack and vaguely intimates that both sides contributed to it, contributed to it. This trend continues throughout the article, referring to, quote, a spate of exchanges and a series of disturbances to describe a pattern of right-wing political violence directed at protests against police brutality. Later in the article, the Tyler assault is summed up as an incident where, quote, brawls erupted. The article claims without citation or qualification that, quote, people on both sides have been filmed exchanging punches, beating one another with sticks and flagpoles, or standing face-to-face with weapons. Upon finishing the article, the reader finds there were two specific incidents of left-wing menace mentioned. One where a group of protesters harassed restaurant-goers for not raising their fists in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, an incident that the Post admits was nonviolent, and the case of a driver who was beaten by protesters after crashing his truck. In contrast to this single assault, the article documents eight recent right-wing assaults on protesters, in addition to the one in Tyler, six of them involving gunshots aimed at protesters, resulting in multiple injuries and four fatalities. In other words, the article's factual content itself belies its framing. The picture it paints is not one of escalating clashes between left-wing and right-wing protesters. Rather, it describes an alarming increase in armed right-wing attacks on peaceful left-wing protesters, usually racial justice protesters. It is a pattern of intimidation and violence, one that is instantly recognizable to any student of 20th century history. Across the globe, privatized violence aimed at popular democratic demands is a hallmark of right-wing authoritarianism. The failure to name and worse to try to obscure through misleading comparisons what is plainly a threat to U.S. democracy is a dereliction of journalistic duty. This article's sins don't end there, alas. It manages to talk about these various armed attacks on people protesting police violence throughout the country without ever using the words racism, racist, or white supremacy. Instead, we have, quote, politically tinged violence. 
political and cultural debates, and my favorite, this year's bitter political divisions. As though 500 years of colonialism and white supremacy have nothing to do with 2020's lethal toll on black lives. And how the Post can fail to see that the terrifying echoes of the post-Civil War century of privatized violence against black people in this renewed wave of paramilitary violence is beyond me. A truck full of white people shooting at black people demanding their civil and human rights is as American as apple pie. Speaking of similarities of the racist past and the racist present, the police come away unscathed in this article. Police are, quote, on the defensive and, quote, face accusations that they are failing to protect protesters against right-wing assaults and are, quote, cozying up to the paramilitaries. This is shameful both ciderism. Police failure to protect protesters and their chumminess with right-wingers is documented fact, including in the article itself, not some unproven accusations. Moreover, while the Post claims that, quote, the images of looting and violence in American cities after George Floyd's death have become the right's rallying cry, it fails to mention that said violence is overwhelmingly police violence against peaceful protesters, which is extensively documented. In Kenosha, the same police who shot Jacob Blake seven times in the back let Kyle Rittenhouse walk away two days later after killing two people and wounding a third. Kenosha police had earlier thanked the paramilitary group Rittenhouse was there with, quote, We appreciate you guys. We really do. But a day later arrested eight Seattle volunteers with the group Riot Kitchen, who had come to Kenosha to feed racial justice protesters. Rittenhouse became an instant hero on the right, while Blake lay shackled to his hospital bed. Meanwhile, both local police forces and federal paramilitary units from the Department of Homeland Security continue to suppress anti-violence protests with chemical weapons and other violent tactics. Trump, who has refused to condemn right-wing violence defending Rittenhouse's deadly attack while falsely accusing the left of violence, has also said he plans to send armed sheriffs to polling places for the November election. That's not in his legal authority to do, but that fact is completely besides the point. The point is that he's adding to the threats of voter intimidation at the polls, all while claiming widespread voter fraud and refusing to say he'll accept the election results. The United States is teetering on the brink of full-scale, white supremacist-fueled authoritarianism. In this context, it is unfathomable that one of the nation's leading papers could write a piece about right-wing paramilitary violence and reduce it to, quote, scuffling, without any larger meaning or effect. Instead of raising the alarm, the Washington Post all but shrugs its conclusion in this article. Quote, With so many people showing up armed, including growing numbers of left-wing social justice activists, police are warning people, that they need to understand the risks associated with modern-day protests and political activity. And just like that, the possibility of democratic protest, the engine of social and economic equality throughout history, 
is treated like some luxury extreme sport where you need to consider carefully whether or not to participate. And if you get hurt, it's your own fault. Democracy is indeed dying in the dark. And it's the Washington Post who turned off the lights. Next up is a piece published, a study published at acleddata.com. Demonstrations and political violence in America, new data for summer 2020. The United States is at heightened risk of political violence and instability going into the 2020 general election. Mass shootings hit a record high last year. Violent hate crimes are on the rise. And police killings continue unabated at 2.5 times the rate for black men as for white men. The COVID-19 pandemic has killed well over 180,000 and disrupted the economy, while George Floyd's death in police custody has sparked a massive wave of protest across the country. The U.S. Crisis Monitor, a joint project between ACLED and the Bridging Divides Initiative, BDI, at Princeton University, collects real-time data on these trends in order to provide timely analysis and resources to support civil society efforts to track, prevent, and mitigate the risk of political violence in America. With supplemental data collecting collection extending coverage back to the week of Floyd's killing in May. The data set now encompasses the latest phase of the Black Lives Matter movement, growing unrest related to the health crisis, and politically motivated violence ahead of the November general election. These data reveal that the United States is in crisis. It faces a multitude of concurrent overlapping risks from police abuse and racial injustice to pandemic-related unrest and beyond, all exacerbated by increasing polarization. This report maps these trends with a view towards the upcoming election, when these intersecting risks are likely to intensify. Black Lives Matter, Racism and Police Violence the long-standing crisis of police violence and structural racism in America hit a new flashpoint this year. On 25 May 2020, Minneapolis police officers arrested George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill. One officer pinned Floyd to the ground and kneeled on his neck for 8 minutes and 15 seconds, killing him. Other officers looked on. Floyd's death prompted a surge of demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement that quickly spread from Minneapolis throughout the country. Between 26 May, the day after Floyd's death, and 22 August, ACLED records over 7,750 demonstrations linked to the Black Lives Matter movement across more than 2,440 locations in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. 
While Floyd's killing ignited the demonstrations, the protest movement has also organized around other victims of police violence and racism across the country. In August 2019, police officers confronted Elijah McLean while he was walking home from a convenience store in Aurora, Colorado. McLean died after authorities reportedly tackled him, put him in a carotid hold, and had first responders inject him with ketamine. At the start of 2020, Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed by a former police officer and his son while out jogging in South Georgia. The assailants claim they suspected him of breaking into nearby homes. In Louisville, Kentucky, police raided the wrong home while attempting to serve a warrant and exchanged gunfire with one of the occupants. His partner, Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old paramedic who was sleeping at the time, was shot and killed by the officers. Demonstration over Floyd's killing have also called for justice in these cases and other past incidents that remain unresolved. In many local communities, protests marking Floyd's death have doubled as acts of remembrance for people like Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, and Trayvon Martin, whose killing in 2012 originally sparked the Black Lives Matter movement. Even amid the current round of demonstrations, new cases have been added to the list, from Rayshard Brooks, an unarmed black man killed by police in Atlanta, Georgia, to Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man shot seven times by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The demonstrations remain ongoing, though reported events associated with the Black Lives Matter movement have gradually declined since their peak in late May and early June. ACLED still continues to record dozens of demonstrations each week. An overwhelmingly peaceful movement. The vast majority of demonstration events associated with the Black Lives Matter movement are nonviolent. In more than 93% of all demonstrations connected to the movement, demonstrators have not engaged in violence or destructive activity. Peaceful protests are reported in over 2,400 distinct locations around the country. Violent demonstrations, meanwhile, have been limited to fewer than 220 locations. Under 10% of the areas that experience peaceful protests. In many urban areas like Portland, Oregon, for example, which has seen sustained unrest since Floyd's killing, violent demonstrations are largely confined to specific blocks rather than dispersed throughout the city. Yet despite data indicating that demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement are overwhelmingly peaceful, one recent poll suggested that 42% of respondents believe, quote, most protesters associated with the Black Lives Matter movement are trying to incite violence or destroy property. This is in line with the civics tracking poll, which finds that, quote, Net approval for the Black Lives Matter movement peaked back on June 3, the week following the killing of George Floyd when riots first began to be reported, and has fallen sharply since. And this misinformation can be directly laid at the feet of our corporate media, 
why do people think that most protests are violent because of the way the media frames the protests, just like we read in FAIR about the Washington Post article. Research from the University of Washington indicates that this disparity stems from political orientation and biased media framing, such as disproportionate coverage of violent demonstrations. Groups like the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, have documented organized disinformation campaigns aimed at spreading a, quote, deliberate mischaracterization of groups or movements involved in the protests, such as portraying activists who support Black Lives Matter as violent extremists or claiming that Antifa is a terrorist organization coordinated or manipulated by nebulous external forces. These disinformation campaigns may be contributing to the decline in public support for the Black Lives Matter movement after the initial increase following Floyd's killing, especially amongst the white population. This waning support also comes as Trump administration recently shifted its, quote, law and order messaging to target local Democratic Party politicians from urban areas, particularly on the campaign trail. Despite the media focus on looting and vandalism, however, there is little evidence to suggest that demonstrators have engaged in widespread violence. In some cases where demonstrations did turn violent, there are reports of agent provocateurs or infiltrators instigating the violence. During a demonstration on 27 May in Minneapolis, for example, a man with an umbrella dubbed the Umbrella Man by the media, and later identified as a member of the Hells Angels linked to the Aryan Cowboys, a white supremacist prison and street gang, was seen smashing store windows. It was one of the first reports of destructive activity that day, and it, quote, created an atmosphere of hostility and tension that helped spark an outbreak of looting following initially peaceful protests, according to police investigators, who believe the man, quote, wanted to sow discord and racial unrest. In another example, on 29 May in Detroit, a number of non-residents reportedly traveled to the city to engage in violent behavior during a demonstration, leading to multiple arrests. In many cases, violent or destructive demonstrations have specifically targeted statues seen to represent the country's legacy of racist violence, such as monuments celebrating colonial figures, slave owners, and Confederate leaders. Since Floyd's killing, there have been at least 38 incidents in which demonstrators have significantly damaged or torn down memorials around the country including statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and colonial explorer Christopher Columbus. Although these incidents account for for a small subset of demonstrations, the trend has become another battlefield for the hyperpartisan culture wars over America's history of racism, and a lightning rod for polarized debate over an appropriate response to the ongoing protest movement. In some communities, pressure has led to official efforts to remove monuments and to rename public facilities like schools, with town hall meetings and other fora providing peaceful opportunities for discussion and reconciliation, which can ultimately help to reduce polarization. 
In others, however, clashes have broken out between those opposed to these memorials, such as the Stone Mountain Monument to Confederate leaders in Georgia, and those who support keeping them. By the end of June, President Donald Trump seized on the topic to issue an executive order authorizing federal agents to pursue demonstrators who pull down statues or damage federal property, spurring the creation of the Protecting American Communities Task Force, PACT, and the deployment of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, agents to protest sites across the U.S. A Violent Government Response The initial government response to the demonstrations was not uniform. Many early protests were held peacefully and without incident. In certain cities, like Los Angeles, California and Camden, New Jersey, authorities even expressed support by joining marches, taking a knee, or attending community meetings on reform. In some cases, these efforts reduced tensions between the community and the police. While in others, demonstrators raised concerns that these displays served more as PR stunts than genuine acts of solidarity, potentially obscuring the scope of police abuse. At the start of June, for example, while some police officers kneeled with demonstrators in Buffalo, New York, separate reports surfaced showing the city's police violently pushing an elderly protester to the ground, fracturing his skull. Overall, ACLID data indicate that government forces soon took a heavy-handed approach to the growing protest movement. In demonstrations where authorities are present, they use force more often than not. Data show that they have disproportionately used force while intervening in demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement relative to other types of demonstrations. Despite the fact that demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement have been overwhelmingly peaceful, more than 9% or nearly 1 in 10 have been met with government intervention compared to 3% of all other demonstrations. This also marks a general increase in intervention rates relative to this time last year. In July 2019, authorities intervened in under 2% of all demonstrations, fewer than 30 events. Relative to July 2020, when they intervened in 9% of all demonstrations, or over 170 events. Authorities have used force such as firing less lethal weapons like tear gas, rubber bullets, and pepper spray, or beating demonstrators with batons in over 54% of the demonstrations in which they have engaged. This too is a significant increase relative to one year ago. In July 2019, government personnel used force in just three documented demonstrations compared to July 2020, when they used force against demonstrators in at least 65 events. Over 5% of all events linked to the Black Lives Matter movement have been met with force by authorities, compared to under 1% of all other demonstrations. In some contexts like Seattle, Washington and Portland, Oregon, the heavy-handed police response appears to have inflamed tensions and increased risk of violent escalation. Militarized Federal Reaction 
The escalating use of force against demonstrators comes amid a wider push to militarize the government's response to domestic unrest, and particularly demonstrations perceived to be linked to left-wing groups like Antifa, which the administration views as a terrorist organization. In the immediate aftermath of Floyd's killing, President Trump posted a series of social media messages threatening to deploy the military and National Guard to disperse demonstrations, suggesting that authorities should use lethal force if demonstrators engage in looting. The president called governors weak for allowing demonstrations in their states and instructed them to call in the National Guard to, quote, dominate and, quote, cut through protesters like butter. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, an advisor to the president, recommended that the administration send in the troops and give no quarter for insurrectionists, anarchists, rioters, and looters. Rhetoric soon translated into action. In early June, the government used National Guard troops, Secret Service agents, and the U.S. Park Police, among other federal agents, to violently disperse peaceful protests in Lafayette Square, outside of the White House, to create a photo opportunity at St. John's Church. The incident prompted a rare public condemnation from former Secretary of Defense James Mattis, and an eventual refusal from current Defense Secretary Mark Esper, to support the invocation of the Insurrection Act, which would allow the deployment of active-duty troops to respond to demonstrations. Still, by the end of the month, DHS established the PACT and deployed agents around the country, including in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and Washington, D.C. Since Floyd's killing, ACLED records over 55 Federal and National Guard deployments across the country, including members of PACT, as well as forces affiliated with Operations Legend and Diligent Valor. This piece goes on to describe some of the events in Seattle, Washington, and in Portland, Oregon, as well as uh, attacks on the media. And then has this section, High Rates of Non-State Actor Involvement in BLM Demonstrations. Government forces are not the only actors intervening in demonstrations amid increased political polarization and deepening mistrust in state institutions. Militias and other non-state actors are increasingly engaging with demonstrators directly. Non-state groups are becoming more active and assertive. Since May, ACLED records over 100 events in which non-state actors engaged in demonstrations, including counter-demonstrations, the vast majority of which were in response to demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. These non-state actors include groups and militias from both the left and right side of the political spectrum, such as Antifa, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, the New Mexico Civil Guard, the Patriot Front, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and the Ku Klux Klan, among others. Overall, over 20 distinct non-state groups have actively engaged in demonstrations this summer. In July 2020 alone, ECLED records nearly 30 events in which non-state actors engaged demonstrators, up from zero 
in July 2019. Whether they are affiliated with an organized group or not, there is also a growing presence of armed individuals at demonstrations, with many claiming they are standing by to, quote, keep the peace, if not to openly intimidate perceived enemies. At least 50 such incidents have been reported around the country since 24 May. Reports that police not only tolerate the presence of certain armed individuals at demonstrations, but in some cases actively encourage their involvement, suggest this trend will continue, amplifying the risk of violence. On the night of 25 August in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for example, during protests against police brutality following the shooting of Jacob Blake, police allegedly told armed members of the Kenosha Guard over a loudspeaker, we appreciate you guys, we really do, and shared water with them. And this goes on to cover uh, the rising number of counter-protests turning violent, as well as um, diving into some of the protests related to COVID-19. Once again, this is at acleddata.com. And this report is called Demonstrations and Political Violence in America, New Data for Summer 2020. Next up, a piece from Mondo Vice, and this is written by Adi Kalai. Trump says the rebellion against police and white supremacy is led by, quote, professional anarchists. Netanyahu parrots Trump like a ventriloquist dummy, saying protesters against him are anarchists, not victims of the pandemic. Biden tags along, saying anarchists should be prosecuted. What is it about anarchists that unites statesmen across cultures and ideologies? Well, I have to say, the ideologies of those three aren't that different. The knee-jerk reaction of many liberal, many a-liberal, is to redirect the accusation at the tyrant. No, says the Washington Post. Trump is the real anarchist. No, says editor-in-chief of Haaretz, Aloof Ben. Netanyahu is the real anarchist. The people harangued by federal agents in Portland or brutalized by the Israeli policemen in Jerusalem are mere protesters, they say, not anarchists. But as the saying goes... Even a blind goat is right twice a day. Both Trump and Netanyahu attempt to discredit the movement by using anarchists as a catch-all negative, but to deny the presence of anarchists or the anarchic nature of the protests is misleading and false. Like Charlie Chaplin, I too am an anarchist. I hate governments and rules and fetters. I resonate with the words of one of the rogues in my anarchist novel, The Sodomites. Quote, For me, to be an anarchist means to be extremely open to other people's humanity, while radically critical of all forms of oppression. Where radical means root source remedy, and critical means you act upon it. I learn equally from my ideological ancestors' victories and their mistakes. From those anarchists who, for instance, gave us the eight-hour day after Haymarket Square. 
but who in autonomous Catalonia of 1936 Spain were too wrapped up in their own ultra-democratic process to escape the fascists and communists who unified to massacre them. If I were in Jerusalem, my hometown today, I too would bang a drum against tyranny. In Oakland last week, I watched the protesters set fire to the courthouse while others chanted, What do we want? Justice. If we don't get it, burn it down. The familiar chant, no longer metaphor. The courthouse that evicts black women locking them out and imprisons black men locking them in. A blaze in accordance with the anarchist practice of direct action. These rebellions give me hope not because I romanticize disorder. On the contrary, the suicidal chaos of our current system is such that only thoughtful, uncompromising resistance can stop it and give us the stability, safety, and harmony we need. Anarchy means lack of a ruler in Greek, not disorder. Anarchists are not outside agitators. We protest where we are, as participants, not rulers. If you look, you will find black anarchists, Palestinian anarchists, Jewish anarchists, and gritty. We draw the connection between the police killings of George Floyd in the U.S. and Ayad Halak in Palestine. We observe how politicians co-opt and dismantle struggles by bribing leaders and promising reform. We share the knowledge and skills, musical, medical, and media, we have gathered over decades of struggle. The blind goat is right twice. Anarchists may only be a fraction of the protesters, but the protests are anarchic in and of themselves. Unlike the Israeli social struggle of 2011, the current struggle has no single identifiable body of leaders that Netanyahu can use to pacify the movement. Protesters organize in a decentralized fashion by free association, under no doctrine or hierarchical coercion, but with shared guidelines. Similarly, anarchists, as Ursula Le Guin wrote in her science fiction masterpiece, The Dispossessed, quote, have no law but the principle of mutual aid between individuals. This principle extends beyond the protests. Anarchists are at the forefront of the mutual aid efforts to support those in need in face of the global pandemic. As colonial settler states, both the U.S. and Israel are employing necropolitical strategies to deal with the pandemic allowing COVID-19 to kill off vulnerable populations. The U.S. government made calculated decisions to generate crisis and let people die. After numerous politicians and capitalists went on record saying coronavirus is good because it will kill old people and reduce the burden on the economy, they are forcing the country to reopen, even as marginalized communities are disproportionately affected and abandoned without health care. In a similarly cynical, albeit more directly brutal, fashion, Israel uses the crisis as an opportunity to further oppress Palestinians. 
Israel obstructs COVID-19 care in the highly affected Palestinian East Jerusalem. It has demolished a building designated by the Palestinian Health Ministry as a COVID-19 testing site. And it continues its relentless assault on human life in Gaza, forcing Gaza's last power plant to shut and incapacitating an already devastated healthcare system. The Trumps and Netanyahu's think they can use anarchy as a specter to vilify the uprisings. Facebook has extended their propaganda into policy, removing over a thousand anarchist pages and shadow banning many more, ostensibly targeting groups that, quote, support violence amidst protests. But in practice, banning some neo-Nazis along with the anti-racists who defend against them by banning the pages that share practice, theory, and history of how to defend against right-wing terror, Facebook and the silent liberal establishment are complicit with the murder of anti-racist protesters. Against the death cult of capitalism and the state, we offer solidarity, mutual aid, and effective resistance. The more they use the term anarchist to disparage a mass movement, the higher we can raise our voices and offer an alternative. Next up is a piece written by Howie Hawkins. Uh, this is published at HowieHawkins.us. Free Edward Snowden and all whistleblowers and political prisoners. The 10-day-old civil uprising following the murder of George Floyd has put police brutality and racism into the national spotlight. The militarized and often violent response by the police and National Guard against nonviolent protest is one form of political repression. Today is the seven-year anniversary of when the national spotlight beamed onto another form of political repression, the mass surveillance of the people by the National Security Agency, NSA. June 5, 2013 was the first publication of Edward Snowden's revelations of mass surveillance by the National Security Agency. Snowden blew the whistle on global mass surveillance of U.S. citizens and people around the world by the NSA in cooperation with big telecommunications companies, including AT&T and Verizon. The scope of NSA mass surveillance included watching and reading the computers of anyone in the world, collecting metadata for hundreds of billions of telephone calls, tracking the location of cell phones, retrieving personal data from Google and Yahoo accounts, capturing individuals' online sexual activity, infecting personal computers with malware to enable NSA hacking and data retrieval, conducting industrial espionage, and spying on allied world leaders. One of those leaders was Angela Merkel, the conservative German chancellor, who, when she found out the NSA was spying on her phone calls, compared the NSA to the Stasi, the secret police of the former East Germany. The U.S. government charged Snowden with theft of government property in two counts of violating the Espionage Act of 1917, a World War I law that criminalizes spies who sell secrets to an enemy for profit, but not whistleblowing 
or political dissent. But it has been used for political repression of people who dissent from the government policies and who expose crimes by the government to the media. Defendants in Espionage Act trials are not allowed to use a public interest defense, which would likely help their case with a jury. Defendants are prohibited from describing the crimes and public harm they were attempting to halt. Using the Espionage Act against whistleblowers has no other purpose than suppressing dissent and the exposure of crimes by government officials. In a Hawkins-Walker administration, we would not only have the charges against Edward Snowden dropped, we would invite him into the administration to help shape policy on cybersecurity and digital democracy. Snowden's memoir, Permanent Record, was the most compelling book I read in 2019. He recounts how he decided to become a whistleblower. He shares his views on how to conduct legitimate digital intelligence gathering for national defense and public safety without violating our constitutional rights to privacy, free speech, and a free press. He also proposes policies to protect personal data and privacy from private sector corporate databases. Snowden has the experience and expertise from working in the intelligence community to provide this policy advice. He also brings the right values. As he says in Permanent Record, the major ideological conflict of our time is between liberal democracy and authoritarianism. I agree. Political Repression Using the 1917 Espionage Act the Espionage Act was enacted and used during World War I to suppress anti-war activists. Three prominent members of the Socialist Party were charged under the Espionage Act for anti-war speeches and writings, including Milwaukee Congressman Victor L. Berger, five-time Socialist presidential candidate Eugene V. Debs, and Labor and Civil Rights Leader A. Philip Randolph. The two most prominent American anarchists of the time, Emma Goldman, and Alexander Berkman were also charged under the Espionage Act. Debs served the most time in prison, nearly three years of a 10-year sentence before it was commuted by President Harding. Debs received nearly a million votes for, for president in 1920, campaigning from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. After the Wilson administration, prosecutions under the Espionage Act were relatively rare and used only against spies, not political dissidents or whistleblowers. Until the Nixon administration unsuccessfully charged Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo for releasing the Pentagon Papers to the media. The use of the Espionage Act changed radically within, with the Obama administration and its, quote, war on whistleblowers. It charged eight whistleblowers under the Espionage Act. The Trump administration has continued with five more Espionage Act cases against four whistleblowers and one journalist and publisher, Julian Assange. These cases are not about espionage and spying. They are about intimidating potential whistleblowers, criminalizing journalism, and rendering the First Amendment right to freedom of the press ineffectual. 
As president, I would pardon or drop the pending charges against all 13 of these Obama-Trump-era whistleblowers. Shamai Leibowitz, a translator for the FBI, disclosed documents to a member of the media concerning illegal FBI practices he has said are similar to what Edward Snowden reported about the NSA. He became a whistleblower after his FBI superiors took no corrective action after he reported the violations to them. In 2009, he pled guilty to one count of disclosure of classified information and was sentenced to 20 months in prison. Thomas Drake was an NSA official who was charged under the Espionage Act in 2010. The case arose from investigations into his communications with Siobhan Gorman of the Baltimore Sun and Diane Rourke of the House Intelligence Committee as part of his attempt to blow the whistle on several issues, including the NSA's trailblazer project of analyzing cell phone and email traffic. In the end, he was found guilty of misdemeanor unauthorized use of a computer. Stephen Jinwoo Kim was a contractor for the State Department and a specialist in nuclear proliferation. In 2010, he was indicted for alleged disclosure of national defense information to reporter James Rosen of Fox News related to North Korea's plans to test a nuclear weapon. Kim pled guilty to a single felony count of disclosing classified national defense information and was sentenced to 13 months in prison. Jeffrey Sterling, a lawyer and one of the few African-American CIA agents, was indicted in 2011 for revealing details in 2003 about Operation Merlin, the covert operation to supply Iran with flawed nuclear warhead blueprints, to journalist James Risen, a reporter for the New York Times, for Risen's book State of War. Sterling had also refused to settle his racial discrimination suit against the CIA, which used the state secrets privilege defense to get the case dismissed. Sterling was sentenced to three and a half years in 2015. Chelsea Manning, a U.S. Army private first class, disclosed to WikiLeaks military and government documents that became known as the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs. Among many revelations about the conduct of these wars was the infamous collateral murder video showing a helicopter gunship shooting down non-combatant civilians and journalists in Baghdad. She was convicted under the Espionage Act in 2013 and sentenced to serve a 35-year sentence. On January 17, 2017, President Obama commuted her sentence to nearly seven years of confinement, dating from her arrest on May 27, 2010. She was subsequently imprisoned for much of 2019 and 2020 for contempt of court, for refusing to testify before grand juries considering the Espionage Act charges against Julian Assange. She said the grand jury proceedings were targeting political speech and that she had revealed all she knew in her previous trial in 2013. She was fined $1,000 a day, which mounted up to $256,000 by the time she was released in March of this year. A crowdfunding campaign raised the money to pay off her fines in two days. 
John Kirikow, a former CIA officer and later a Democratic staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is the sole CIA agent to go to jail in connection with the U.S. torture program during the Bush administration. He didn't torture anyone. He blew the whistle on waterboarding to the media. He was charged in 2012 with several counts under the Espionage Act, facing a possible 45-year sentence and mounting legal fees. Kirikow entered a plea agreement in exchange for pleading guilty to the one charge. The prosecution agreed to a 30-month sentence. Edward Snowden has been exiled in Russia since 2013, facing charges under the Espionage Act for revealing the NSA's secret mass surveillance program. As president, I would have the charges against him dropped and invite him to into the administration to help formulate policies on cybersecurity and digital democracy that enable legitimate intelligence gathering without violating civil liberties and the right to privacy. Reality Winner was arrested in 2017 for leaking a half-page classified NSA document about Russian attempts to gain information about the U.S. election process, including a cyber attack on at least one U.S. voting software supplier and a spear phishing emails sent to more than 100 local election officials just days before the 2016 presidential election. The document was a summary of findings, not raw intelligence. She remains in prison today after pleading guilty to one count of felony transmission of national defense information. Winner's plea agreement with prosecutors sentenced her to five years and three months in prison, followed by three years of supervised release. Terry Albury is a 17-year FBI agent who was charged under the Espionage Act in 2017 of leaking to The Intercept the FBI's secret guidelines for using informants and for surveilling journalists and religious and ethnic minority and immigrant communities. Albury, the son of an Ethiopian refugee, viewed the FBI's approach to counterterrorism as rooted in racial and religious bias. He routinely heard other agents made, make racial jokes and slurs as they investigated the Somali Muslim population in Minneapolis, where Albury was the office's only black agent. He believed the FBI's racism and xenophobia only deepened the mistrust of law enforcement among people who could give useful information. He pled guilty in 2018 to unauthorized disclosure of national security secrets and is currently serving out a four-year sentence. Daniel Hale, an NSA employee, leaked documents about Obama's drone assassination program to Jeremy Scahill for his Oscar-nominated Dirty Wars film. Hale believed extrajudicial murders were illegal and wrong. He was charged under the Espionage Act in May 2019 for counts that could carry a 50-year sentence. He pled not guilty, and his case is under litigation. Julian Assange was indicted in May 2019 on 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act for publishing secret military and diplomatic documents in 2010 that he received from Chelsea Manning. Assange is not indicted for being a whistleblower but for being a journalist and publisher of information provided by a whistleblower. 
Assange is the first journalist charged under the Espionage Act. The Bush administration considered using the Espionage Act to prosecute the New York Times for revealing the warrantless wiretapping program and the Washington Post for exposing the CIA's secret prisons for the detention and torture of terrorism suspects. The Obama administration considered charging Assange under the Espionage Act. Both administrations backed off when they realized the implications for the First Amendment free press rights made their case difficult to win. As the Nixon administration found out in the Ellsberg and Russo case with the Pentagon Papers. But the Trump administration has no such qualms and has charged Assange for practicing journalism. If convicted for publishing government leaks, it will effectively end freedom of the press, which relies on government leaks to report what the government is really up to. If I were president, I would have the charges against Assange dropped. Henry Kyle Fries a counterterrorism analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency was charged in late 2019 under the Espionage Act of disclosing classified information about a foreign country's weapons systems to two reporters. He pled guilty in February 2020 and faces up to 10 years in prison when sentenced. Joshua Schultz, a former CIA software engineer, was charged in August 2017 under the Espionage Act with leaking to WikiLeaks Vault 7, a large set of documents that revealed a secret division of the CIA responsible for offensive hacking operations that include implanting malicious computer viruses to compromise cars, smart TVs, web browsers, smartphones, and other operating systems. These activities are plainly illegal and unconstitutional. Schultz pled not guilty and the judge declared a mistrial in March 2020 after the jury was deadlocked on all but two of the 11 charges. The government can retry the case. Meanwhile, Schultz has pled not guilty in separate trials on charges of possession, possessing child pornography and of sexual assault. As president, I would have the Espionage Act charges for whistleblowing on CIA illegal activities dropped. I would monitor the sex crime trials to make sure he received due process under the law. The Trump administration's war on whistleblowers includes three more indictments using other laws, as well as the firing of the Inspectors General of the Intelligence Community and the Department of Defense, State, Health and Human Services, and Transportation, many of them because they were protecting anonymity of internal whistleblowers. U.S. Political Prisoners Whistleblowers serving time in prison are a small subset of a much larger group of U.S. political prisoners. I have previously called for the release of all U.S. political prisoners. Mumia Abu-Jamal and Leonard Peltier are probably the most well-known U.S. political prisoners, but there are hundreds of political prisoners from the freedom movements of African Americans, American Indians, Chicanos, and Puerto Ricans, and from the peace and environmental movements. Many of them are serving longer sentences than others convicted for similar crimes for the political reason that they opposed government policies. Dr. Joseph Harris, a former Black Panther and Mumia's doctor, has said that many of these political prisoners who have been incarcerated for decades should be released now on the grounds of simple human decency. 
In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, there is more reason than ever for them to be released. For example, example, Major Tillery is a 70-year-old jailhouse lawyer who blew the whistle in 2015 when Mamiya Abu-Jamal was near death due to untreated hepatitis C. Tillery, who is serving a life sentence for a murder conviction that most observers believe was a frame-up, became ill with COVID-like symptoms a couple of weeks ago, but has not been tested or properly treated. There should be no political prisoners in free and democratic society. As president, I would pardon and free all U.S. political prisoners. And finally, here is a piece from uk.reuters.com. This is written by Raphael Satter. Seven years after former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden blew the whistle on the mass surveillance of America's telephone records, an appeals court has found the program was unlawful and that U.S. intelligence leaders who publicly defended it were not telling the truth. In a ruling handed down on Wednesday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said the warrantless telephone dragnet that secretly collected millions of Americans' telephone records violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and may well have been unconstitutional. Snowden, who fled to Russia in the aftermath of the 2013 disclosures and still faces U.S. espionage charges, said on Twitter that the ruling was a vindication of his decision to go public with the evidence of the National Security Agency's domestic eavesdropping operation. Quote, I never imagined that I would live to see our courts condemn the NSA's activities as unlawful, and in the same ruling, credit me for exposing them, Snowden said in a message posted to Twitter. Evidence that the NSA was secretly building a vast database of U.S. telephone records, the who, the how, the when, and the where of millions of mobile calls, was the first and arguably the most explosive of the Snowden revelations published by the Guardian newspaper in 2013. Up until that moment, top intelligence officials publicly insisted The NSA never knowingly collected information on Americans at all. After the program's exposure, U.S. officials fell back on the argument that the spying had played a crucial role in fighting domestic extremism, citing in particular the case of four San Diego residents who were accused of providing aid to religious fanatics in Somalia. U.S. officials insisted that the four, Basali Saeed Moalan, Ahmed Nasir Talil Muhammad, Mohammed Mohammed, and Isadora were convicted in 2013 thanks to the NSA's telephone record spying. But the Ninth Circuit ruled Wednesday that those claims were, quote, inconsistent with the contents of the classified record. The ruling will not affect the convictions of Molin and his fellow defendants. The court ruled the illegal surveillance did not taint the evidence introduced at their trial. Nevertheless, watchdog groups, including the American Civil Liberties Union, which helped bring the case to appeal, welcomed the judge's verdict on the NSA's spy program. Quote, Today's ruling is a victory for our privacy rights, 
the ACLU said in a statement, saying it makes plain that the NSA's bulk collection of America's phone records violated the Constitution. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can uh, follow on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020.com. You can check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. Here is Dan Bull with the song, Hey There, NSA. Thanks for listening. This is for Chelsea Manning, this is for Edward Snowden, this is for all the whistleblowers who will never know, and this is for Anonymous, this is for Avaz, the following lyrics are going to be particularly high! How long before the storm and all of it, then are my lyrics before I recorded them, shit's getting more and more Orwellian, how long before they hoard everything, then are my Facebook wall messages, they can read my email and it's all effortless, then are my porn preferences and dwarf fetishes, but they don't know what the difference between laws and ethics is, but now we've all found out what the effort is, we better give them a lesson in etiquette, you wanna heckle the Bolivian president, you better give me some evidence, it to be evident, if you were meddling in another government up in this web we're in, so I'm sending this to the president, you're setting a sickening precedent, said I'm sending this to the president, you're setting a sickening precedent, oh now I've written a threatening letter, this kid is a dissident rebel, we better get him on the list of significant threats with the rest of America. If you love your country, your country should love you too But how can you trust someone who doesn't trust you? Prism is a prison and the prison is your mind Pulling out the pecker and the pissing on your rights So let's take a leaf out of their hands and take a leak every opportunity we can If you love your country, your country should love you too But how can you trust someone who doesn't trust you? I'm watching you, watching me, we're a drama scene But the chemistry's not there, there's no bonomy Mr. Obama the heat, the words of harmony Cause he's got binders full of everyone, it's morally fucked The clock strikes 13 on the dot Another whistleblower finds a little glowing spot Right between his eyes, in the middle of his forehead For revealing lies, his prizes that he falls dead I'm watching you, watching me, watching you, watching me And between us there's a lot to see, we probably rather not have leaked I'm watching you, watching me, wondering to what your interception fringe my intellectual property The clock strikes 13 on the dot Another whistleblower finds a little glowing spot Between his eyes in the middle of his forehead For revealing lies, his prizes that he falls dead Someone at the National Security Agency could blatantly be paid a fee Created briefs to basically mean any shady people are safe and free to take a peek Look, I don't believe in evil, but I believe in greed or paranoia Power hungry, that's abusive, absolute power corrupts absolutely And I'll hammer that home till they have to shoot me I'll be happy to head down the boogies and bet that they're getting a good look at my cookies They're up all night to get cookies, they're up all night to get cookies They're up all night to get cookies, they're up all night to get cookies And who took the cookies out the cookie jar? If you can't see that, then you are looking far The clock strikes 13 on the dark Another whistleblower finds a little glowing spot Between his eyes and the middle of his forehead For revealing lies, his prizes that he fought